Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance, and on the podcast too, if you are. Uh, today we'll be talking about Arthur Schopenhauer, who lived from 1788 to 1860 in Germany. He's as much known for his flamboyant haircut and curmudgeonly personality as his philosophy of will and representation. To discuss the man and his intellectual legacy, I have with me Chris Janaway from the University of Southampton, and Daniel came from St Hugh's College, Oxford. Ruth Mary will be providing live music later. So, just to start with, who was Schopenhauer and why he's important in the history of philosophy? Who wants to take that one? Okay. Um, okay. As you this said, is Chris. Okay, yes, Chris Janaway. Um, Schopenhauer, I think, is important because he gives a very definite view of the human condition. And maybe we should start with who he was first. Well, who he was, he was born in uh, Danzig, which at that time was in Germany, uh-huh. and he was the son of a, a rather uh, wealthy businessman. Um, he was destined for a life uh, in business and sort of European commerce. He had an education where he travelled around Europe and mm-hmm. saw lots of great artworks and great cities and was set out for this cosmopolitan life as a, of a businessman. Gave it all up because he uh, fell in love with philosophy, basically. Yeah. Um, it's very dangerous. <laughs> and um, he ended up uh, producing um, a completely original uh, system of thought, uh-huh. which, as you said in the introduction, is marked by a kind of pessimism about the human condition, uh-huh. um, which I think is has been was very influential later on in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked in the first half of the 19th century, as you said, died in uh, 1860, mm-hmm. but he was virtually unknown during most of his life. And it's not until the latter part of the 19th century that people started taking an interest in his views. And he was very influential on a lot of artists, um, on Wagner, on other composers, but also a lot of uh, literary writers and and other artists found his ideas very appealing. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, If I could just add something to that about uh, Schopenhauer's early life, um, I think a very important event in his adolescence was the suicide of his father uh-huh. I, th- I think i mean this this it would be uh, implausible to think that this event in schopenhauer's life wasn't a, a formative influence on him and a psychological mm-hmm. antecedent he was like a teenager at the time or something he was it? 17 uh-huh. at the time when his father died um I mean, his father suffered from rec- rec- recurrent uh, depressive episodes which schopenhauer himself seems to have inherited inherited yeah. um but on the plus side, his father's death enabled him to uh, become a private, independently funded scholar because uh, he inherited a fortune yeah. from his father. Okay. So, there's, yeah, that's a, that's a good condition for philosophy, isn't it, to have independent means. Okay. What sort of, sort of person was he? Do you get an impression from his writings of the sort of man he was? Um, yes. Uh, he was... Um, it didn't suffer fools gladly. No. Um, thought of himself as a rather embattled, lonely figure who the intellectual world had, igno- had ignored, um, and he was he was probably quite hard to get on with. Um, yeah, there are yeah, no, I, I various anecdotes that, about him yeah. that uh, suggest this. Yeah, he pushed his landlady down the stairs once, didn't he? Uh, apparently, that's not quite accurate. Oh. But there was a bit of a he. He couldn't stand anybody making any noise oh. in his building, and he complained, and she refused to to go, and there was something happened. Oh, well, that's disappointing. His latest biographer says, "No, no, no, it's completely untrue that he pushed her downstairs." Oh. Anyway, she claimed compensation, and he had to pay for the rest of his life. Uh, to support this woman. So, yes, he, he, he got in a few scraps with people. 
Okay. Uh, why is he important to you guys? Why is he important to you, Daniel? What's your particular interest in him? Well, Schopenhauer engages with the, the great questions of mankind. He like may, what? Like, why is there suffering? Is happiness possible? Uh-huh. What is the meaning or purpose of human existence? Right. These, are, these are the great questions of mankind, and they're questions that are still disputed. Um, okay, but keep listening and you'll find out the answers later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what, what about you, Chris? Why is he important to you? I think basically the same. I think that um, he poses these questions uh, almost in a kind of religious way. Um, life is full of suffering. Uh, it ends. Uh, there's a lot of pain in life. What is the point or purpose of this? Um, But he's just at that time in history when religion seems to be losing its hold. He's an atheist. There's Mm. no place for a god in his system. Sure, but he's quite ahead of the curve in his atheism, isn't he? Um, He is, I think. I mean, he doesn't ever argue that there isn't a god. He just starts from a viewpoint in which um, there is just this brute fact of reality and Mm -hmm. some people have said it has been said he's a kind of precursor of existentialism we just exist as a matter of fact but there's no purpose to our existence i think that's where he starts from yeah Uh, so the the kinds of answers that he's going to give to those questions that daniel mentioned are actually pretty downbeat and pretty tough yeah there is no point to human life uh it simply contains suffering to which there's no further point uh, and if we if we really understood what, what life was like, we wouldn't want it. We think it would be better not to exist. It goes as far as saying that. Okay. I mean, could you? I mean, before we get into the sort of details of what he of his ideas, can can you give me a brief overview of his uh, basic th- his basic theories about the world? Do you want to have a go at that first? Time? Well, Daniel? the starting point for Schopenhauer's yeah. philosophy is the distinction which he inherits from. Kant between uh-huh. the phenomenal world and the noumenal world. Which means what? The English? phenomenal world is the world of everyday experience, the right. world of physical objects situated in space and time and uh, subsisting in relations of causality. So physical objects exist within a causal network. Right, so sure. This physical object can interact causally with other physical objects and so on. This is the this is the phenomenal world. Or right, the, the world of world, experience, world of we might say. ordinary perceptual experience, right. that's right. Um the noumenal world is the world as it is apart from that experience, the world as it is in itself. What you mean, independent of the way we perceive it, yeah? Yes, that's right, yeah. Okay. So Schopenhauer, following Kant, thinks that the way in which our ordinary everyday experience is organised in terms of space and time and causality and so on, these aren't objective features of reality. These okay. are forms of our experience which we impose on the world in the act of perceiving it rather than discover so you, you're, you're basically saying that if we weren't experiencing, there would be no causes in the world. That's the that's the Kantian and uh-huh. the Schopenhauerian view uh-huh. that apart from a perceiving subject, right. there are no spatio or temporal causal relations between okay. things. So this is the metaphysical framework within which Schopenhauer's operating. Now Kant uh, was strictly agnostic as to the nature of the world as it is apart from perception, the yeah. nature of the noumenal realm. He thought we couldn't have any knowledge of it. Uh Um, This is the (coughs) famous Kantian prohibition on metaphysics. Mm -hmm. It's a prohibition which Kant himself doesn't always abide by because he ends up saying some rather substantive things about the nature of the thing in itself. For example, that 
the thing in itself can, is constituted by a plurality. Sorry, by thing in itself, you mean the entire world as it is independent yeah, of perception, Yeah, the entire right? world as it is apart from perception. So the word thing is quite uh, misleading, perhaps. But anyway, that's, a, right. that's an so, aside. So Kant thinks that the thing in itself is constituted by a plurality of things in themselves. Right. So for every object in the empirical realm, there's Everything a corresponding... Everything we see. Yes, there's a corresponding... Uh, thing in itself. So, for the various table, the various physical objects in this room, there are corresponding mm-hmm. noumenal objects. All right. um, Schopenhauer disagrees violently with Kant about that particular character, that particular claim about the noumenal world. Right. He thinks that the noumenal world is undifferentiated; it's one and divided. Okay. Yes. And it is. He also he also radically disagrees with Kant's prohibition. On metaphysics, he thinks that mm-hmm. we can actually attain knowledge of the thing in itself. Yeah, and he and he posits what the thing in itself is, and it's, it's and what is this thing? He in calls itself, it. He calls it will, which means what the the same as. Mm, that's that is difficult, and this I think is one of the things you, you need to think about carefully. He keeps telling us that the world is will, and obviously in the title of his book, the world as will and representation, which is his main work. His main work. Um, the idea is that there's another side to the world, the world as, as beyond their experience, the essence of the world, what uh-huh. it really, really is in itself, that's the idea, yeah. is will. But what does he mean by that? And okay. Yeah, we're not going to answer the question. that. We're going to answer that after the break. But uh, um, before we get into it, the details of this, I just want to ask what, apart from Kant, what other philosophical uh, cultural ideas did he inherit or make use of? Or He made use of Eastern philosophy for sure, didn't he? He did. He is perhaps the, the first, well certainly really the first major Western philosopher to really know about uh, Indian philosophy and to really find points, very deep points of uh, resemblance and agreement with it. Such so, as? Well, he uh, he read a version of the Upanishads when he was quite young uh-huh. and um, it turned out to be a, a sort of transformative book for him. And that's like Indian metaphysics. Um, Yes, um, there's a lot of stuff about um, the self, the illusory nature of the self, the self being identical with the world Uh as a whole, uh, the illusion of plurality and and, and so on, which he found very uh, metaphysically very interesting. Later on, he discovered quite a lot about Buddhism Mm -hmm. and found its doctrines about suffering and the change of consciousness that you need in order to uh, redeem life he found that was actually very sympathetic to his own views. So, uh, if I mean, that's one thing that he's very important for historically, the first Western philosopher really to try and assimilate uh, Indian ideas. Okay. He was also influenced by Plato, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that there's a, an eternal timeless reality behind the world of our experience mm-hmm. that you find in Plato. He also found very sympathetic. Okay. Uh, Daniel, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I mean, we've already mentioned the influence of Kant. Yeah, sure. the other main influence on Schopenhauer's thought. Um, I mean, he inherits large parts of Kantian's, uh, of Kant's metaphysics. He he agrees with much of what he finds yeah. in Kant. Except this stuff about whether you can know what the noumenal is. Well, that's, that's the main point of divergence between Kant and Schopenhauer. Okay. As I said, also, they disagree as to the, as to the um, whether or not the thing in itself is constituted by a plurality okay. of objects. But Schopenhauer thinks that you can't have a plurality of things uh-huh. apart from space and time. Well, that makes sense to me. If they were all in the same place and time, they would all be one thing, wouldn't they? Well, Kant, yes, because Kant 
argued that space and time, as, as we've said, were f forms of our intuition, so they're not yeah. objective features of the world. Mm. So at the level of noumenal reality, space and time don't apply. Yeah. Okay. So Schopenhauer thought Kant was being somewhat inconsistent in characterising the thing in itself in terms of plurality of. Okay, I see. Trips. All right. Can I just add one thing? Sure. I think what where Schopenhauer really disagrees with Kant is not so much over the detail, but his whole outlook, uh, because um, they disagree over whether life can actually be any good. Okay, and we'll find out after the song from Ruth Marion. Uh, I'll let you introduce the song, Ruth. What's it called? Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's um, a song called Tinder Heart. Okay, take it away, Ruth. Possibilities, potential intersecting history, the succulent, unavailable crush. Rebound, playing the unreciprocated love, the perfect tease, just out of reach. You want to love, and you love to want. The hook is the hunt, the thrill of the chase. It's a Dangerous, dangerous game Hateful, beloved Unevenly matched I already see the smoke rising And the phoenix sinking in the ash I can always close a sail But you can't Tinder heart meets its match Don't light it Finally, this tinder heart meets its match Don't keep me hanging Make it quick, let me die like a
Thank you, Ruth. And that was Ruth Merry. And uh, at the end of the show, I'll give you, she'll give you a website or something. You can uh, check her stuff out on. Okay, uh, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. Uh, this is the Philosophy Now radio show. We're talking about Arthur Schopenhauer, philosopher of pessimism in from uh, the, the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, we talked a bit before the break about uh, his Schopenhauer's major work, The World as Will and Representation. Just want to go a bit more into the, the ideas in that. Um, you mentioned, uh, Daniel, that this um, the world as it is beyond our experience of it is will, and the world as, and by, by uh, deduction, the world, the rest of the world is what is called representation. Now, uh, I suppose, Chris, what does he mean by representation when he says the world is will and representation? Because he does say at the beginning, the world is my representation. What does he mean? Um, well, representation, the world as representation is basically the world as we experience it. Right. Or as we can possibly experience it. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, representation just means you know, what is present to mind, what, what the mind perceives or okay. what it can think of. Um, so what is left over is, as it were, what the world is is beyond what we can directly perceive it to be. And this is, I mean, there's only those two things that make up reality to Schopenhauer, is that right? Yes. Is there anything else? You think of them, I think, he thinks of them as, as it were, two sides of the same coin. There's one world, um, it has a an aspect that we perceive, and it has an aspect of what it is independently of what we perceive. Okay. What's his justification for thinking the world's this way? Da- Daniel, do you want to try that one? Well, in the second volume of The World's Wooden Representation, he speaks of objects as having two modes of existence or as there being uh, two sides of being. So right. any object within the empirical world has what he calls an objective mode of existence. That's the way it appears to to us in perception. Mm-hmm. So the objective existence of the water bottle, for example, is its being situated in space and time it's appearing to right. to us as an object of perception it's being uh, it's causally interacting with other objects and so on <clears throat> but it also has what he calls a, a subjective mode of existence that's what it is a, apart from perception he thinks that that basic distinction applies to all things including, okay including and most importantly human beings we have an objective and, an, and a subjective well mode it's of being. It, it's clear in the case of ourselves that we do have a subjective side to ourselves. That's our experience, an objective side, which is, I guess, what, what we look in the mirror or what other people see of us, yeah? But why did he think... Why did Schopenhauer think it was justified to expand that sort of dichotomy into the whole of the universe? To say, you know, the whole of the universe has this objective and subjective side. Because it's not clear to me that, you know, the whole of the universe, for instance, it resembles a giant brain... Or, you know, a set of brains, because brains are the only things that we know have well, subjective experience. I mean, right? in, say, in saying that inanimate objects have a subjective side to their existence, right. he's not meaning to impute any consciousness or then, um, okay. subjectivity in that sense to physical objects. But In what sense? But then? their existence isn't... Their being, the being of an inanimate physical object, isn't exhausted by the way in which it appears to a perceiving subject. There For is, sure, yeah. There is another scientifically inaccessible... Um, side to so it's not necessarily subjective in the same way that we're subjective as human beings, or is it? I don't think it's subjective at all. I think it's a totally misleading way of okay, putting it. Okay, so actually. yeah, well, t- uh, tell, tell us why Daniel's wrong then. Um, well, I think that he thinks that we're looking for the essence of things, what things really are. 
Okay. Okay. And he starts by thinking, well, can I discover what I really am? You know, can I discover what I am independently of the way I appear? What am I really? What's my essence? Okay. And he argues that my essence is will. I am trying, striving, wanting, needing to do things. I'm, I'm tending to want things all the time. I have desires, but I also have unconscious needs. So I'm a, I'm a living organism that's striving and trying to do things. Right. And he thinks, well, actually, the whole world's like that uh, in itself. So that's yeah, what he means what by the notion of will. But it doesn't, as Daniel said correctly, it doesn't mean that the rest of the world has consciousness. No. It just means that everything is in some sense trying to be something. Everything is striving. But the word striving or will has to be has, – has have the notion of the mind or consciousness taken – out of it. Sure. So uh, everything is tending in a direction. So he says we can think of gravity even as things trying to be in a different place from where they are. Okay, you may say that's just metaphorical. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the, the importance of the, the, the influence of this idea is to make human beings just a part of nature. Okay. The essence of ourselves is just the same as the rest of reality. We're not special. We're just things that are trying to go in certain directions, just like the rest of reality. Okay, so let me just see if I got this right. He's saying that um, our essence as human beings is to be willing, striving things. Yep. And he's also saying that it's the universe's essence to be a willing, striving thing, right? And so that our willing and striving is just a sort of example of the universe at work if you like to put it like, like yeah. that but my question is what justification does he have for thinking this to be true well this com comes back to his claim that space and time are mm -hmm. necessary for individuation right you think given that schopenhauer thinks that space and time don't apply at the level of numeral reality at the level the of will. the way the world is apart from perception yeah it follows that the will or numeral reality must be undifferentiated it's unindividuated Okay. Just one single just thing. So, what causes thing. the individual? So, it follows from that mm -hmm. that if you can identify the noumenal essence of any one single thing in nature, you can extrapolate from right. that okay. to the rest of nature. He thinks that through our own okay. sub subjective awareness of our bodies, awareness, <coughs> knowledge of noumenal reality is in effect disclosed to us, and we can extrapolate from that to the rest of oh. nature. Okay. <coughs> so, is it a case of he started off? This is my suspicion about him. He started off with this idea that he wants to have about reality and he's found a, a way of arguing for it. That's not really fair, is it? Well, you might say um, uh, all philosophy is a bit like that. Yeah, all things uh, are like that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I, what I think... The metaphysics of it are notoriously difficult to defend, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and his metaphysics as such, never really had many followers. Um, but I think what's important is the vision of the human condition that uh -huh. he le leaves us with. So our essence is to will, right. um, but the will isn't necessarily rational. Uh, it is not necessarily okay. even can conscious. I, can so, I stop you there and say, okay, first, first, then what is will? Can anybody say what it actually is rather than what it isn't? I mean, it's a striving, but I mean... It's a striving of what? Well, what sort of it's substance a, or it, nature it's does it a, have? He refines it a little bit by talking about the notion of will to life. Right. So we are naturally predisposed to strive for life and mm. to reproduce life. So, as it were, life 
is a goal of our existence, of our being. Mm -hmm. uh, so we strive to survive and we strive to produce more life, to reproduce, right. um, just like all other parts of organic nature. Mm -hmm. So it's a will to live, if you want to put it that way. Well, it's a will to life. I think it's important okay. to say that because it's not just about me carrying on living. It's about me producing more life and mm -hmm. he sees the drive to reproduce and hence the sex drive as the human essence and i think that's very important in other words we we are in the grip as it were of this drive not that we've chosen it yeah and i think this is one of the important things about his position that leads to the the, the pessimism or the label of pessimism is that our essence isn't something we've chosen or really something we really want it's okay. just we're in the grip of this drive. What it leads to is suffering. But I'm sorry to stress this point, but to say that a drive is the essence of reality, I mean, what's this drive made of? Or who has this drive? There's nothing that has this drive, is that right? Well, all the individual things that make up the world. So, um, But uh, before they existed, this will existed, right? I don't think you can really say that. No. I think it's the, the will is, as it were the common essence that all the things that do exist have. Okay. But I'm still not sure of what it is apart, you know, apart from how we see it. Well, this is a notoriously vague concept in Oh, is that okay. I mean, Schopenhauer characterizes it in various ways. I mean, he uses terms such as perpetual striving, flux. Um, he describes the world as inherently chaotic. Um, I mean, these are terms which enable us to get some kind of handle on sure. what he has in mind. Um, but it is, as I said, a notoriously vague concept in Schopenhauer. It's not entirely clear how, uh, just as an aside, how Schopenhauer can, coher can coherently describe the will as striving, mm -hmm. um, given that he thinks it exists outside of time. I mean, to, to describe yeah, the will right. as in a, in a state of perpetual strife uh, and flux... These are properties um, of the will that are hard to reconcile with its being atemporal, I think. OK, what's the place of humanity in this world of will and representation? What part do we play in it? Or what's our We don't have any special place in the world. We're just no. another organic species. What is special about us is that we have language and we have uh -huh. rational concepts. We can think and reason. Um, I think it's very important historically that Schopenhauer doesn't think this is a very big deal. Uh, what reason? Uh, the ability to have concepts makes us different from animals. The ability to do reasoning, have logic, do mathematics, all of these things are characteristic of human beings. The ability to have language, no other species has it. But really deep down we're all the same because we're all striving after life. We're okay. the same as all the other species in essence. And I think that's an extremely important because earlier philosophers tended not to say that. For example, Kant, humanity has a particular dignity because of its reason, because it is able to reason, it has rationality. Um, okay. And the whole sort of enlightenment project, as it were, before Schopenhauer, uh, places a lot of emphasis on what's important about humanity is its rationality, its ability to reason. Schopenhauer, I think, looking forward to Freud um, in, a, in a big way, sure. suggests that actually rationality is just a kind of, almost a kind of froth on the surface. It's not really, what we're really about is will, these drives that somehow we haven't chosen 
and actually they lead to a kind of terrible condition in which we just end up not getting what we're striving for. We end up suffering. And, and yeah. that's the characteristic of human life. Sure. Pointless uh, suffering because we're driven on by this will that is our essence. He's very ahead of his time. I mean, he's, he's prefiguring Darwin. He's prefiguring Freud. He's prefiguring the existentialists. He's quite a genius, really. It's a shame that he can't really justify his major uh, metaphysical position. Um, well, there's a lot. There's a lot in Schopenhauer value that could be detached from the metaphysics. Though. Right. Yeah. yeah sure well, we're going to talk about the ethics in in the third part. But um, just one, maybe one last question for this part. Um, if the will is just one thing, then how come we're individuals who do not perceive ourselves as part of one thing? How does that work? Why do we not perceive ourselves as? Why do we perceive ourselves as individuals if there's no such thing really as individuality? That's a very interesting question. Um, he thinks that in order to experience anything, we've got to divide it up in space and time and see one thing as causing another through time. Uh -huh. um, so we couldn't just experience the unity that reality is. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have to structure it. And the, the structures that he thinks Why are do we necessary... Uh, well, because there has to be some there has to be some form to experience. There has to be some order to uh -huh. it. Otherwise, it wouldn't amount to experience of a, of a ordered world of objects. Right. And this is basically Kant's view that he's mm -hmm. taken on. Um, it's a slightly difficult view. In other words, that it's it's our experiencing the world that breaks it up into individuals. That and that's a kind yeah. of idealism. Okay, idealism meaning. Um, that the world doesn't have the world as we experience it doesn't have a reality wholly independently of the way we experience it. Or taking away all the double negatives, it means that the world is only what is present to experiencing beings. Uh, yeah, what's pos possibly present to them. Okay, that's yeah. fair enough. And uh, after break, we're going to talk about some of the consequences of this uh, weird theory of reality. But we're just going to have Ruth doing another song now. And what's this song, Ruth? Uh, okay, the song's called The Heart's Made to Float. Okay, fire away. Thank you, Nick. I got opinions on everything And I think you should know I believe it's a good thing I'm hyper-responsive, a little high-maintenance I'm alive, I can feel and experience Years spent being afraid of emotion Shut me down when the shit hit the fan The greater you fear, the deeper your ocean So I got brave and I swam Cause I used to hang around with oblivion I used to Hope was 
was leached, it was eating away at my soul. It was cold, it was painful, slipping beneath the waves. I felt warm and safe. It was dark, but not so accidental. Sin had to play, it was sackcloth and ashes. Time is a healer and remorse is a lot less attractive. Cause I used to hang Great. What's your website if people listening? Um, to yeah, go so to it's uh, ruthmerry.com, uh-huh. um, which is actually under construction, but it takes you through to the Facebook page. Uh-huh. So it's ruthmerry.com. That should be easy to remember. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Flossing Round radio show on um, Resonance. I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and we're keeping it real with Arthur Schopenhauer. Or are we? Um, we've talked a bit about the world as will and representation, will being the inner essence of reality, and it's similar to the striving will that we all have in our lives. And then the representation is the world as we experience it to be, and, and uh, the one comes out of the other. But what? now we're going to talk about uh, the ethics of the situation. I mean, what our responses or what the practical implications of this view of reality are so first what should our response be to the nature of the world or what should our attitude to reality be do you want to go first daniel well i think the first thing we need to say is that the will the will enters the human sphere in the form of an incessant and inherently painful 
striving, okay. given that our essence is will. We're so it's similar to Buddhism in the sense that they say that everything is desire. Yeah, and the connection between desire and suffering is similar in Schopenhauer as well. I mean, Schopenhauer thinks that to desire is necessarily to suffer. Right. The desire something is, by definition, in Schopenhauer's view, to lack that thing and to experience a lack or a deficiency uh, is to suffer to some degree. And it's a, it's a sort of necessary product of the will that we're going to have desires to do things. That's right, right. yeah. Okay, so how, how should we respond to that then? Well, I think there are, I think there are various criticisms that can be levelled against Schopenhauer. Sure. First of all, I mean, I think his, the, the 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 idea that uh, desire necessarily involves suffering is is questionable. Um, not all instances of desire seem to be like that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you have a desire for something and you have an expectation or anticipation of the desire being fulfilled, then uh, it seems to me that, that that sort of desire doesn't always involve suffering. No. So, um, but um, Chris, how about what about Schopenhauer? What does he recommend that we respond to his view of reality? Well, just just before that, I think he has a slightly stronger point about desire and and and, and suffering, which is that when we satisfy the desire, right, that doesn't really solve anything for us because because by nature we're desiring, willing beings. As soon as we satisfy one desire, another one rushes in yeah. to take its place mm-hmm. so we're he has this vision or this picture of human reality as perpetually unsatisfied right. we we can't help desiring things well, as soon as we get them the desire is wiped out the pain the lack that we've suffered is wiped out but then we immediately start wanting something else so we by a, by achieving what we desire we don't turn off desire we can't stop being desiring beings at will. So there's nothing we can do about our so suffering stuck situation. With it. Is we're that basically stuck with it. what is meant yes. by his pessimism? I think that's part of it. Right. Uh, we're, we're, we're stuck with desires because even if we satisfy them, we go on having more. Why, we can't, can't, why can't we do the Buddhist thing and say, look, we take the middle path between desiring and not desiring and sort of achieve an equilibrium like that? Well, what he thinks the, the best situation would be to, as it were, become detached Mm-hmm. from desires right. to actually as it were have a, a complete change in consciousness whereby you're experiencing the world but you as it were become detached from wanting anything out of the world okay. so you and he describes this as actually de- becoming detached from the individual human being that you happen to be and becoming a pure mirror or subject that just looks out upon the world but doesn't see human needs and human desires as actually having anything to do with it. So okay. a kind of detachment from desire, from willing, that he uses some quite religious language about that. He says that is the only way that our existence can be redeemed. It's sure. a kind of salvation from the life of striving and suffering. But you've got to hope that it happens to you. You can't really bring that about at will because it's about losing will. Yes, you can't bring about at will the loss of will. Um, so what, I mean, he does recommend art. I mean, what is it about art that helps him trans, that helps an individual transcend his individuality and his desiring, uh, Daniel? Well, he thinks that in aesthetic experience, the... Sorry, and what, by which you mean what? Well, our experience of art oh, and beauty. Right. Uh, the, our sense of ourselves as individuals dissolves. There's a kind of merging of 
the subject and the object. There's a merging of the perceiving subject with, with the work of art itself. Well, I mean, I think he's starting from observations of what the psychology of art is like, what the psychology of the experience of art is like. It does seem to us as if there is a merging of our... Of, of, the, of, the, of the subject and the object. It is, it is as if there is this dissolution of individuality. He also says that our awareness of space and time recedes, so we're, as it were, penetrating the, this illusory veil of uh, spatio-temporal So it's not relation. just getting lost in art. It's not just sort of uh, you're so, it's so beautiful that you'll sort of forget who you are. It's more than that, isn't it? What is the more... That he's sort of saying artistic experience. Well, because gives you. because he thinks in aesthetic experience, individuality is dissolved. Uh-huh. He also thinks that we cease to desire and therefore cease to suffer because we we desire things as individuals. If our individuality is, but uh, why should our individuality dissolve by looking at a piece of art or hearing a piece of music or something? Well, this is based on, as I said, his observations of the psychology of. Aesthetic experience. What 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 happens when you undergo when you when you when you undergo a, a aesthetic experience is an absorption uh, of yourself with the object. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. What, uh, Chris? What does he mean by um, the sublime in art? Yeah. Um. Quite a difficult question. Um, the sublime is a kind of aesthetic experience. This is important to him, isn't it? It is important to him. It's a kind of aesthetic experience in which we are aware of um, a painful feeling. So we, we at the same time have a pleasure and a kind of painful feeling. And it's a, a rather traditional notion in, from um, the previous century that uh, the sublime is about gaining pleasure in something that we recognize to be painful. Oh, and yeah. perhaps a good example would be uh, tragedy. And I think you talked about that the last week. Uh, the, the experience of tragedy okay. gives us an idea that... Like a, uh, dram- we're a, pl- on, a tragic play, for instance. Yes, a, tra- a tragic play. Um, I don't use the word tragedy to mean anything other than a tragic drama. Okay. I think it's a misused word. Um, but um, the idea is that we're recognizing something that we know to be painful about human existence. It's full of uh, pointless uh, suffering that is undeserved. Right. But there's a kind of pleasure that we take in recognizing the thing that's painful. Um, there's more to be said about the sublime, but perhaps Daniel would like to... Okay, Daniel, add, do you want to add something to that? Well, I mean, just a couple of other points about the value of aesthetic experience right. in general for Chopin. Sure. I mean, on the on the one hand, he ascribes a kind of hedonistic value to it. He thinks that it's valuable because it delivers us from the the suffering which attends our willing, our desiring. Uh-huh. Um, but he also thinks that in aesthetic experience, we acquire knowledge of the object of our experience, the so, will, in other words. Well, he he describes the he describes what we come to know in aesthetic experience as the platonic ideas. Now, what, what he means by this is roughly a kind of archetype or um, you might think of it as the extracted essence of the object that which the work of art depicts. So if you're looking mm-hmm. at a painting of a tiger, for example, right. you're not looking at a representation of a particular tiger, but rather the essence of tigerhood. Does that depend on how good the painting is, for instance? Well, it does depend on how good the painting is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, it depends on how good the mind of the artist was. Yeah. Actually. So, can I can I uh, ask the question? Um, 
how does the idea of genius in art relate to what uh, Schopenhauer's idea of art, I suppose? I mean, what makes an artistic genius for Schopenhauer, in other words? Well, this has to do primarily with the powers of perception right. of the artist. I mean, he defines genius in terms of um, an individual's possession of extraordinary powers of perception. The genius is able to perceive the idea in the particular, in the object within the empirical realm. He then Sorry, can I stop? That means you see a tiger and you get the general idea of tigers from yes, the tiger. The, the, and then the genius in able virtue of his extraordinary yeah. powers of perception is able to perceive the essence of the, t- of the object in the particular. Um, he's, he is then able to... Um, uh, embody the idea in a work of art and render it more vivid, more accessible to those of lesser perceptual And that's powers. the job of an artist, is to, is to convey universal ideas to uh, their exp- people who are experiencing it, yeah? Mm. Well, I can go with and that. I think that relates also to what we were saying earlier, that he thinks of the genius as someone who's able to detach themselves from their individual will. So right. they're, they're perceiving more objectively than the rest of us. They're not looking at something saying, is this something to run away from? Is this something I want? Is this something good or bad? They're actually just objectively mirroring, as he says, what's there. They're able to detach themselves from their individual will. And he has an idea of sainthood, which is quite similar, isn't it? That... Well, if we could just, 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 fin- just to finish off aesthetic experience, right. because we haven't yet spoken about the most important component of aesthetic experience for Schopenhauer, which is that he thinks aesthetic experience pr- conveys to us knowledge of what our true salvation consists in. Uh, our true sal- okay. Yes, which, uh, which, in effect, is the aesthetic state prolonged, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. So aesthetic experience provides us with a glimpse of what... what is, is Sorry, what is that state prolonged? It's, uh, it's a continual state of experience well, of the universe. aesthetic experience involves just temporary cessation of desire and so right. temporary relief from suffering, whereas... Through, through this contemplation of universal ideas, right? Yes, the dissolution of individuality and the uh, cessation of desire that comes with that. Okay, so salvation for Schopenhauer, therefore, from this world of will and suffering would be a prolonged experience experience of universal ideas is that not really um he he really talks about these universal ideas only in connection with art i think right um what he this idea of salvation he says the only true salvation we can ever have is by a negation of the will Right, itself. I want to know how us. you do that. Yeah. Well, you don't do it. It happens to you. Okay. How do you get it to happen to you? Uh, well, he says that it can happen. You you attain a vision of life, uh, which he calls is characteristic of the saint. The saint sees right. the suffering all around the world, and identifies with all the suffering beings in the world. So suffering is not something particular to this individual. Willing is not something particular to this individual. You gain a view of the whole. And you identify with the whole in some way. Okay. Um, the other route to this kind of vision is to suffer so much yourself that the will to life within you rebels and turns against life. Mm-hmm. The pretty bleak prospect. That's what we have to hope for. Okay, and that's what you get if you're lucky, right? Yes. Okay. Um, what I mean... <laughs> That's, it's not really very sort of practical sort of ideology. He's not exactly a barrel of laughs. No. no. Um, well, but I, I think w- what's important is this idea that um, human individuality is, in some sense, a curse that we're all suffering from. Right. This was a very influential idea, I think, later in the 19th century sure. and in the early 20th century. His remedy is somehow 
cease to think of yourself as an individual at all, just float above it in this contemplative state where you don't want anything anymore, so you can't really suffer anymore. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's really possible. Um, was his personality the result of his pessimistic philosophy, or was his pessimistic philosophy the result of his personality? Pass. Well, I mean, Sch- <laughs> Schopenhauer is very aware that his pessimism could be taken as, as he puts it, a mere declamation on human misery. Right. So he offers various arguments, a, a priori arguments, arguments which are which he constructs independently of any empirical observations right. of the world. Uh, argument based on a, sim- a straightforward analysis of what it is to desire, what it is to will. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, these arguments are, are, I think, intended to avert the charge of him simply uh, projecting onto the world his own melancholy disposition. Oh, uh, yeah. But I'm... But so I think, to be to fair to Schopenhauer, yeah. we have ah. to engage... If we're going to... If we're going to if, in discussing his pessimism, we have to engage with the arguments themselves. Okay. Yes, I, I, I don't like the idea that he, he just had these views because of his personality. I think that uh, you have to take it seriously as a philosophical view. Okay, but... And he wasn't entirely gloomy. He played the flute every day, as Nietzsche points out. Okay, that's something. Uh, um, okay, uh, we're getting near the end of the show. I want to ask you guys, what do you think Schopenhauer got right and what did he get wrong? Uh, do you want to go first, Daniel, on that? In your opinion? Well, I think... Um, I mean, the value he ascribes to, to aesthetic experience in human life, I, uh-huh. think, I think that's extremely important. Um, I think his uh, analysis of suffering is particularly insightful. I think in terms of uh, his relevance to contemporary philosophy, there's much in his aesthetics which is um, of value. I, don't, I think it, it can be divorced from the questionable metaphysics. He has a, I think in terms of his uh, description of what it's like to undergo aesthetic experience, that's enormously insightful. OK. Uh... Chris? I think there's something we haven't really touched on, which right. is um, his view of morality. Morality consists in being compassionate to all beings. Um, and yeah. uh, he's very concerned that it isn't only rational beings who are of moral worth. Uh, and he thinks that morality is really quite a simple affair. It's whether you are able to uh, um, sympathize and feel compassion for the suffering of other beings. And what's very interesting, I think, and seems very contemporary is that he wants to include all animals in this. All animals are equally yeah. deserving of our moral compassion. And he's, he's um, furious about uh, previous philosophers who see hu- human beings as in some way morally special. And right. I think there's quite a lot in there which uh, is taken up. Probably not, people don't realise that Schopenhauer said this, but actually sure. it's very similar to a lot of things that go on in ethics today. Okay, well, that sounds like a good sort of enough place to end the discussion. I, I'm going to ask you: Has any of you got any books or coming projects you want to plug? Um, well, I'm I'm currently overseeing a translation of all the, a new translation of all of Schopenhauer's works okay. by Cambridge University Press. It's When's that six you volumes. Are? Well, two are, two are already out. Okay. Third one's on its way. Well, go, rush out and buy them now, kids. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel. Well, I'm. Well advanced on a, uh, with a book on Nietzsche, okay. uh, which interprets Nietzsche as concerned primarily with repudiating the pessimistic verdict on life that he encountered in Schopenhauer. 
Okay, thank you very much. And I've got um, uh, Love, Solitude and Destruction, which is a book of short stories, and The Meta Revolution, which is a Meta Revolutionary Manifesto, available on uh, Kindle. And Ruth, can you repeat again what your websites are for people? Yeah, sure. It's ruthmary.com, um, and there's a, an EP out as well, and that's on Bandcamp. Okay, okay, thanks very much. And uh, you've been listening to Philosophy Now Radio Show. This is going to be Velvet Underground again. <laughs>